Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today, we are going to address the riddle, what's the difference between a grumpy old man talking to himself in a small room and a podcast? And the answer, of course, is a microphone. And I have the microphone, and so I'm going to be the grumpy old man today and and talk about several things that are, are bothering me generally about the inflation landscape at the moment and, and really sort of the, the things that people are saying uh, and just sort of things that get stuck in my craw because, you know, old people have craws. That's what we've got. So... So let's go ahead and get started. One of the things which sticks in my craw, as it were, is that we keep hearing from central bankers uh, a particular phrase, and I guess Mario Draghi said it a couple of years ago when he was talking about what the ECB would need to do to to keep the uh, the lesser credit satellite nations in Europe from defaulting, and he said the ECB would do whatever it takes. And, and that's become a very popular phrase in, in uh, central banking circles. And it made some sense when Draghi said it because you know, there really was sort of no limits to what it was that they were able to do. And it was pretty clear what he meant when he said whatever it takes. He meant we will buy all of their bonds if necessary. And so that was pretty clear. But nowadays you're seeing... Federal Reserve speakers, uh, when, it, when asked about how they're going to address inflation and, and whether they have the tools and the will and all that stuff, they say, we will do whatever it takes to restrain inflation. Now, this is not at all what, you know, akin to what the, to the, what the Mario Draghi uh, uh, construction was, because again, back then we sort of knew what he was talking about. So when a Fed... Official says, we'll do whatever it takes. My next question is, well, what does it take? Why aren't you telling us what it takes? If you know what it takes, then why don't you just tell us what it's going to take? Um, or, or better yet, just do it. <laughs> you don't have to say whatever it takes. Just, you know, okay, then just go ahead and do it and make inflation come down. And, um, but the, of course, the reason they're, they're, saying whatever it takes is that they don't know what it takes because we wouldn't be in this circumstance to begin with if they hadn't screwed it up royally the first time, which implies that they don't know what it takes because, you know, what they really need to do is put what they did in reverse, but they don't really know why what they did is wrong. And so that's really the problem. So that kind of sticks in my cross. I'll cross that one out. Whatever it takes. I'm, I'm a little bit amazed uh, at how equity markets are doing, given what's happening with inflation. Uh, not, not ter- not. I, let's put it this way: I'll be amazed if we are still looking at S and P at forty five hundred a year from now. Um, but, but I guess what is what what sticks in my craw is not actually the market performance; it's that you are seeing in various places that folks are saying that stocks are an inflation hedge. And so everyone should be in stocks, and that's why stocks are doing so well, is that they're an inflation hedge. 
this really bothers me because we've literally known for decades, decades, that stocks are a particularly poor inflation hedge. Um, Zvi Bodhi wrote a paper back in, I think, 1973 uh, addressing whether or not you could use stocks to hedge inflation. And his conclusion said something to the effect of, you can use stocks to hedge inflation, but only because you can short them. And that is, in fact, all of the evidence is that equity portfolios in inflationary times don't do better, they do worse. And it's confusing, okay? So if you've never actually bothered to look at the data, and I, to, be, to be fair, most of the people who are saying you should buy stocks are people who make money when you buy stocks from them. Um, but it, so if you've never looked at the data, you might reason through it in something like, like the following manner. You might say, look, uh, if a business um, it had, has expenses like wages and they have revenues tied to their prices and they've got any kind of pricing power at all, they should at least be able to keep up with rises in expenses. And moreover, sort of the fundamental nature of the income statement is levered uh, in that you are hopefully taking in more revenue than, revenue than you're paying out in expenses. So if you inflate both of those by 5%, your total profit inflates. And in fact, there's various other operational leverages and things that don't have inflation on the expense side. And so, and so lots of businesses do see their revenues in nominal terms uh, go up in inflationary times. Uh, and, and, and some of them even in, in real terms see their, their net incomes go up in, in regular times. So that sounds like that should be really great for stocks. But here the, here's the problem. The problem is that, and again, we've known this for a very long time, the, the multiple that is attached to those revenues or to those, the, that income um, and which determines what the price is that which your security trades, the, the market multiple, the P.E., uh, tends to be at its highest when inflation is between 1% and 2%. And, and it goes down either side of that, if you get into a deflationary period or if you get into a high inflationary period. And historically, and not starting from these kinds of you know, the multiple threat right now, but historically, going back 100 years or so, uh, the answer is that if you get inflation above 4%, you can expect about a one-third haircut on the PE. So if you're at, uh, you know, a historical PE of, of 21, then you'd expect to go to 14. You know, so a 33, all else being equal, a 33% decline in the price uh, of the market. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's very regular that this has happened in the past. And, and I think one of the reasons it hasn't happened yet uh, in this market is that the trigger is not so much inflation per se. The trigger is actually inflation expectations. It's when inflation expectations rise and therefore interest rates rise and the discount rate applied to those future earnings rises and makes them cheaper. That's when you end up having really bad equity accidents. And that's the reason that when the Fed tightens, stocks go down. Uh, with with high regularity, in fact, high enough regularity that um, there was a commercial uh, back in the '80s that I I remember um, that where the the 
Marty Zweig. And he said in his commercial, if you can spot meaningful changes, not just zigzags, in interest rates and momentum, you'll be mostly in stocks during major advances and out during major declines. And so, you know, obviously momentum comes and goes, and a lot of market trading these days happens on momentum, but we haven't had any meaningful change in interest rates in some time. But it, it's very clear that that is you know, one of the mechanisms by which you can expect an equity market re-rating. But so it sort of bothers me that there is, that, that people will actually go and say you should buy equities to hedge inflation because the evidence is so clear that that doesn't work. And in fact, there are a lot of, a lot of the newer products, a lot of the newer ETFs that have come to market and purport to be inflation hedging ETFs are stuffed with equities. And so you look at them for five minutes and you say, this, this is not going to do well if inflation, you know, goes up and it's not going to do well if inflation stays up. And in fact, if you look at the performance of these things, you find that they haven't done very well at all in the greatest inflation we've had in 40 years. Um, the other thing that I think, uh, people don't appreciate as much when it comes to inflation and how it interacts with equities. And really more than, more than how it interacts with equities, how it interacts with stock bond portfolios. So the sixth, classic 60-40 portfolio where you have 60% in stocks and 40% in fixed income. And these days at these interest rates, it's probably 70-30 you know, or 80-20 for most people. But one of the reasons that we put stocks and bonds in a portfolio together is that at times, the, the returns are inversely correlated. So when, uh, when we're in a recession, we're heading to a, to a recession, bonds tend to do well and stocks tend to do poorly. When we're coming out of a recession and growing rapidly, bonds tend to do poorly, stocks tend to do well. And so when you put these things together, you get a, a portfolio that has a good return and a lower overall risk because these things lean against one another. The problem is that that only works in periods of low and stable inflation uh, when that cycle, that growth cycle, um, has different effects on, on the interest rate part of your portfolio of bonds and the growth part of your portfolio that is stocks. When you get inflation, and it turns out it's actually not that high a level, if you get inflation, three-year rolling inflation above about 2.5%, those correlations tend to flip and become positive, meaning that both stocks and bonds go down together. Well, right now the three-year rolling uh, inflation rate is about 2.9. And so we're at the level where we would expect to see stocks and bonds move together. I think we're just waiting for the trigger, and the trigger is in inflation expectations. Well, inflation expectations, um, recently uh, the 10-year 10 10-year 10 break-evens, which as a reminder for those of you who haven't listened to too many of these podcasts, a break-even is one way of measuring in inflation expectations in the market. It's the yield of, say, the 10-year treasury minus the yield of the same maturity tips bond, which is a real yield. And because tips get paid that real yield plus inflation, 
uh, you know that 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 plus inflation part is where you're you break even between the two of them. The fixed rate that you get on the ten year note and this rate that's tied to a real rate plus some some inflation that we don't know yet. And we can figure out what we need to do to uh, to break even. And so that tells you where you are indifferent with respect to buying uh, tips or or fixed rate bonds. Well, the ten year break evens haven't been much above two seventy two. Uh, almost for the life of the TIPS program. Uh, TIPS in the United States started in 1997, and TIPS initially were very, very, very cheap. And, and so even when we've had sort of these little minor inflation scares previously, we never had break-evens much above 270 uh, at the 10-year point. Recently, they went above 3%. And, and honestly, I've, I would be shocked if they don't continue to go higher. But I don't know what what the trigger is, but at some point here, as the Fed stops buying bonds, and one of the things which keeps break-evens down is if you're buying nominal bonds and pushing those yields down artificially, you, you artificially depress this break-even. If the Fed lets the market trade to where inflation expectations actually are and where interest rates ought to be, you're probably talking significantly higher interest rates, not just overnight interest rates, but out the curve. And you're probably talking significantly higher break-evens. And I can't imagine that we'll be able to absorb a meaningful change there, not just a zigzag uh, in interest rates. And uh, we'll see. But I, I again, what, what sticks in my craw is not that. Markets do what markets are going to do. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And and that doesn't bother me. That's just part of uh, part of being a trader. Part of being an investor is is watching stuff go up and down when you least expect it. What what bothers me is that is that the the uh, stock market shills will sit there and tell you that stocks are an inflation hedge. And and believe me, if you hold stocks as an inflation hedge, you should really think about something, some alternative. Um. I should say that that 10-year that break-even, I said it went above 3% recently, and that was, a, like I said, an all-time high since the beginning of the TIPS program. Um, we didn't have TIPS prior to 1997, but if we had had them, then inflation expectations in the 70s and 80s clearly would have been, a much, would have been much higher. I uh, did a study a while ago, and it's, it's on uh, my blog... If you do a search for a very long history of of real interest rates, I think is what I call it. But um, uh, but if you go do a search for that, essentially what we did is we built a model that said here's how real rates and nominal rates should relate to one another. And we made economists have done some kind of naive things in the past to do the same to come to the same. Uh, uh, to develop that kind of time series, it doesn't really work the way they do it. Ours made, made, makes much more sense. And uh, but the bottom line is that yes, break-evens in the early 1980s got to 12% plus. So, uh, but but interestingly, what doesn't happen in that kind of episode? If you've got a 17% yield, it's not because real interest rates are at nine. Real interest rates go up to four, four and a half, five percent, and that's kind of as high as they get. 
And then after that, if you want nominal rates to go to 14, that's got to be in break-evens. It's got to be in inflation expectations is what actually does it. Um, so, but I do want to, you know, when I say that that inflation expectations are at all-time highs, that's only because tips have been around since only 1997. Okay, one more point about tips and uh, then uh, a sort of a comment about uh, Federal Reserve policy since it's recently changed. Um, the comment about tips or, or inflation is that, um, again, historically, you know, inflation has long tails. And that's always what has what's scary. And by the way, it's one of the reasons that tips have value um, – over and above kind of where, where the break-even suggests you should be buying them. Because when you do get an inflation mistake, it tends to not be a 40 basis point inflation mistake. It tends to be a very large inflation mistake, as we're seeing right now. And so if you look back to, uh, I think, 1913, no, actually, I think, uh, I think the study goes back to the 1880s. But let's just say over the last 100 years, about one third of all the times that inflation was over four and a half percent, it also was over 10 percent. And so inflation doesn't really tend to spend a whole lot of time in kind of the four, five, six percent range. It either goes down or it kind of pauses there and goes up. Uh, and I think which direction it goes has a lot to do with what the Federal Reserve is going to do over the next couple of years, not with respect to interest rates, but respect to to the balance sheet. Because it's we didn't have this inflation because we had super low interest rates. We have this inflation because, because we've had super low interest rates for a long time. We have this inflation because we had massive government spending that was financed by the Fed effectively creating all of that money. And uh, and so we had this you know, massive increase in the money supply um, and, and, and in real spending. Um, so what the Federal Reserve needs to do is not just raise interest rates, but to shrink the balance sheet, shrink the amount of liquidity out there. And again, that's not going to be a good thing for stocks if they do that. <clears throat> but here's where we get to the difference between the way the Federal Reserve operates now and the way it used to operate. In the old days, if the Fed wanted to, to slow the economy or to, to, to push inflation lower, it understood that to do that, it needed to, to restrain liquidity. It needed to decrease the number of loans that were being made by banks. And the way it did that was by constraining reserves that were available to banks and banks require, among other things, they require these reserves in order to be able to make loans. So when the, when the Fed restricted reserves, it caused liquidity to the consumer, to the, to the business that's borrowing, to the consumer that's borrowing, but liquidity at, to the end user, M, the M2, um, it caused that to slow down. And it didn't have a perfect fine control over that, but it, it, you know, if you restrict what banks can lend, then you're going to restrict the money supply. And it understood this very well. And the way interest rates came into this is that the way the Fed would monitor whether or not it had pulled back enough liquidity is they would watch conditions 
in the overnight securities market, the overnight interest rate market. And if they pulled back on liquidity, they expected to see interest rates rise. And if they added liquidity, they expected to see interest rates fall. Because that's another consequence of liquidity is when it's being exchanged in the overnight market, if you add to its supply, you push the price down. If you subtract from the supply, then you push its price up. But that wasn't the purpose. The purpose wasn't to cause interest rates to move. The purpose was to restrain liquidity. We were just measuring that by looking what happened to overnight interest rates. Somewhere along the line, people forgot that that the purpose of the operation was the liquidity and and not the interest rate. So it's it's sort of like if you're a meteorologist and you watch the rain gauge every day and you notice how much rain there is and you do that so much that you kind of think that the the object here is that that if you can put more water in there that you get rain. That <laughs> somehow the gauge is what we're going to really focus on. That's the important thing and not what's causing the level in the rain gauge to go up and down. Different kind of liquidity, I guess. But so, so now the way the Federal Reserve operates is as if liquidity does not itself matter or that you can move liquidity very easily by changing interest rates. Now, changing overnight interest rates do, does have some effect on liquidity, but we've never done it when we've had the copious excess reserves that we do presently, we don't really know what it does. So that in itself is sort of scary. But, but moreover, what we're, what we're doing is what the Fed's doing. I have nothing to do with this. What the Fed is doing is controlling the price of credit, not the supply of credit. And, and they're doing that very explicitly. Now, if you're a borrower... If you're a corporate borrower, what you care about more than anything, and I'm not talking Exxon, who, you know, for five basis points on a $5 billion bond, you know, they care. But the average commercial and industrial borrower, the average consumer, uh, do they care a whole lot if the interest rate they're paying goes from 8% to 9%? Eh. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't want to see interest rates go up from 8 to 9%. But I can tell you, you care much more if you can't get the loan. It's simply not available. And so that's really the, the issue is that, you know, the Fed is sort of hoping that activity can, can go right on along. There'll be plenty of activity because there won't be any restraint on, on lending, on the supply of credit. And yet, by changing the price of credit, somehow we're going to change inflation. Uh, honestly, it's, it's all a little bit ridiculous, but that's kind of where we are. And again, it's something that sort of sticks in my craw. Um, finally, I guess, you know, I, the, you know, the Federal Reserve is now tightening policy, is now raising interest rates, I should say. And, and the market believes they're going to be the next hike is going to be 50 basis points, and then there's going to be some more 50s or an intermediate move or maybe a 75, and the Fed's going to be super, super aggressive. I do not give this much probability because that may be the way that it worked in a vacuum. Um, if it, it may work that way in the lab and in the models. 
Um, it may work that way if the chairman of the Fed uh, doesn't have to go up and, and talk about what it is that, that he's, he or she is doing and explain why they're, they're doing what they're doing. Um, but, but moreover, I think what's going to happen, the reality of sort of what's going, what's, what's going to be happening over the next six to nine months is that we're going to be faced with other pressures that could cause recession. So we have the Fed raising interest rates, although not restricting credit. We have energy prices going up dramatically, which curtails discretionary non-energy spending. And we've got food prices now going up dramatically. And in fact, uh, President Biden today was talking about how uh, there will be food shortages will be very real, he said. And so it's hard for me to imagine a world where in that the economy is so strong that you can get higher interest rates, higher food prices, higher energy prices, and you don't get some kind of recession out of that. It would be really, really remarkable. Um, and so I think that what's going to happen is a few months down the line, as growth starts to look a little bit not so nice, is that the Fed will fairly rapidly back off of being quite so aggressive. But we will see. Time will tell. So I'm going to turn off Grumpy now and, uh, and tell you thank you for tuning in today. That's all for today's podcast. I want to remind you that you can contact me by writing to inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. Uh, my blog is mikeashen.wordpress.com. I'm on Twitter at, at inflation underscore guy. We have the Inflation Guy mobile app. Uh, visit Enduring Investments website and, and you, know, you can look at what we do there and contact me from there if you like. But most importantly, especially these days, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. Yeah.